This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network. My name is Lee Pierce. I am your hostess with the mostess of the channels in language and media and communications. I'm excited today to welcome a fellow rhetorician um, who is bringing us another excellent book from the University of Alabama Press. Shout out, Alabama. So today, please help me welcome Dr. Nate Johnson, whose latest book, Architects of Memory, Information and Rhetoric in a Networked Archival Age, released last year from University of Alabama. This book probes the development of information management after World War II and its consequences for public memory and human agency. Dr. Johnson charts turning points where concepts of memory became durable in new computational technologies and modern memory infrastructures took hold. He works through both familiar and esoteric memory technologies uh, from you know, the card catalog in your local library to the book cart to Zata coding uh, and keyword indexing. As he delineates histories of librarianship and information science and provides a working vocabulary for understanding rhetoric's role in contemporary memory practices. So I'm excited. It talks about all sorts of interesting concepts, memory infrastructure, uh, mnemonic techne, I think I'm pronouncing that right, to kind of look at this sort of seemingly opaque wall of mundane algorithmic techniques that we've all seen but showing how those algorithms actually determine what is worth remembering for us and what should be forgotten. So the algorithms sort of dictate how we think of what's worth keeping hold of, even though we think that we're doing that for themselves, right? So I'm excited to welcome Dr. Johnson to the show to discuss the book, Architects of Memory. Dr. Johnson, are you there? I'm here. Wonderful. Well, tell us more about the book. It's so fascinating. And tell us about yourself. The listeners may not be familiar with your work. Yeah, so I'm a, an associate professor at the University of South Florida, and I am uh, primarily teach classes in professional writing, rhetoric, and rhetorical theory. And so um, the the this book kind of emerged naturally out of my graduate training. I, my PhD is actually in information studies, which is the reason why I'm really compelled by librarianship and the ways that are kind of databases and public institutions uh, of cultural memory are put together. And uh, so when I started working with rhetoric students and uh, with other rhetoric faculty, I started just like thinking naturally about how are some of the, what are some of the uh, interstices or interface, the interfaces where this, you know, the, the, my disciplinary training kind of focused me to look at in terms of what typically gets called information infrastructure, but is, you know, practically the sorts of databases that Google puts together or the sorts of library collections that your libraries put together, the sorts of archives that your local archives put together, and thinking about uh, sorts of ways that rhetoric intervenes and makes a difference in those spaces. And mm. so like the, um, and so the impetus for the book is like, okay, so the, 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 the parts of uh, previous scholarship that make made the most sense for me 
we're to start looking at memory and memory practices. And um, the the impetus for the book probably was after I'd been thinking about the problem for a while was going back to an older book within rhetoric and composition, uh, Edward Corbett's uh, Classical Rhetoric for the Modern Student from 1965, mm. where I, you know, like I read this sentence that said all of the ancient Greek and Roman canons are important except for memory. And mm-hmm. that kind of ended a lot of scholarship within uh, rhetorical studies until the late 80s and the 90s when there's been kind of a renaissance of memory studies that are primarily focused on the sorts of memory practices that happen in public spaces like museums, monuments, and um, other public other public institutions, the sorts of things that have been really popularized in the last 20 years, especially as our field has contributed significantly to uh, the, the sorts of discourse about why public monuments should be taken down. Yeah. But I also thought like there's, the the there's also strains of memory within rhetorical studies that aren't focused necessarily just on the spatiality of memory of where memory happened but the techniques that individuals pick up in order to supplement or actually intervene in their own memory and so that's where the book came from is to try and think where are modern ways or where are, are the contemporary places that publics individuals can make a difference in the sorts of things that they remember and how much is that bound up within our institutions that we inherit from previous generations. So, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. So I was going to say, so for, throughout the book, I'm, I'm working through different case studies um, that are historically very important within information science because they're like uh, mythical stories that the field uses in order to talk about the sorts of disciplinary practices that it picks up now um, and, and, and and to use those as case studies to better imagine what if instead of in 1965 when Ed Corbett says that we no longer need to study memory, that instead in 1965 we start thinking together with folks in computer science and information science and some of these data pre- processing uh, fields and and making a modern memory practice that's just as informed with rhetoric as it is with um, the sorts of uh, computational theory that get brought into information science. Yeah, I don't normally ask this question about books because I kind of don't, because I hear people ask it and I'm always like, I don't care about this. But in this book, I was really interested. How did you, this is a really sort of nebulous, but networked argument, right? Because you're kind of looking at things from multiple fields. You say, oh, my PhD was in information management, but then some of the stuff is information management, but some of it's, you know, digital online coding and all this stuff. What was the moment you feel like, or maybe, maybe not like historical moment, but even in the book, when do you think this crystallized most clearly for you, either as you were writing the book or or when you were kind of first fomenting the idea of putting together this argument about information technology and sites of memory and kind of public remembering and forgetting? Yeah. So, hmm. So I would say this was, this, this book was originally what I wanted to do for my dissertation project. And the reason was, was because I personally was trying to figure out where two fields were coming, where two, where two fields were diverging. And so for me, that's when it crystallized. It's just like, you know, when you have a feeling that there's something going on and, but you just like, you know, you're swimming too much in the water. To oh yeah! Really see what, really see <laughs> Welcome <going>. to my life. <laughs> so I, I knew I knew I had something because this this story of information science that's in the book, the history of information science that kind of weaves through librarianship and a post World War II group of folks that are intervening in the ways that inter- information management happen are also very rhetorical in my head. But it takes you know me another ten years after that to figure out how is that happening. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, part of the the work of that book is thinking through that argument. And I'm still, you know, like the, I'm still thinking through that argument. I end, I end the book with a uh, retelling the myth of Simonides 
to try and get to a better space where I think, you know, I need other rhetoricians to jump in here and help me with this story because I think there's something going on with the ways that technical infrastructure is being made to scaffold public memory and individual memory. And now mm. love given the the new story, the new way I want to tell Simonides for other folks to jump in and say, here, these are the points where we can actually make a difference in public discourse today. Yeah. Well, and with that, you've got a bunch of really interesting examples. Like I said in the intro, some familiar to people like card index catalogs and some brand new, for instance, uh, Zata codes, which is uh, Calvin Moore's, if I'm not, sorry, I may forget names. That's right. Uh, Zata codes. And I don't know if there's a specific example you want to jump into, and then maybe we could define a couple of these keywords for listeners, um, mnemonic, techne, things like that, that might be helpful for them to conceptualize the big payoff of the book. Sure. So the Zato coding one is a really good example because it signals this shift in uh, memory information management that has a huge impact on the sorts of information that publics have available to them in terms of in terms of public access, and mm-hmm. so uh, that that story is leading in uh, because. Uh, during World War II, uh, a number of individuals took up positions as intelligence agents. And when World War II ended, they came back to the United States with this training from the military in how in, in information reconnaissance, thinking about how information works, like this different tradition of managing information, but they also needed jobs. And so one of the point, one of the places where these individuals come back into the United States and re-enter the economy is to start entering the professional spaces that librarians typically had inhabited up until that point. Calvin Moores is one of these individuals that that is thinking through kind of the lens that uh, the lens that World War II and Cold War science enables him to think through and begins changing the ways that uh, access to things like libraries work. So some of the earliest uh, institutions to pick up the Zato code, Zato coding cards, were librarians who were very interested in providing access to their collections. And so when Kelvin Moore starts uh, changing the sorts of things like keyword indexing or or subject headings that had been... mm, calcified within the professional training of librarians in the decades before, my argument is that this is literally changing the ways that the public can remember and forget by changing the sorts of information that's operating within the background and the modes of access that's available to them. Um, mm-hmm. and just kind of finish to finish up the, the Zato coding story. So Calvin Moores is trying to sell these Zato cards, which are early punch cards um, that are are not as sophisticated as as computer punch cards. They're not one zero type of encoding. They encode subjects onto cards that can be run through computers. Subjects in terms of uh, subject headings and keywords that can be attached to books, articles, etc. But then can be run through computers so that it ex- ex- expedites. The ways that librarians and people using library catalogs can then search through larger collections faster. Yeah, really fascinating. I, I mean, it's cool. Uh, these books are always so interesting to me because I love what other people see and things I see that I wouldn't have thought. Right. So I look at a card catalog and it's like, oh, yeah, this is just information and index. Even as a rhetorician, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just information. And then you're like, no, this whole <laughs> this whole thing is like a whole structure that suggests what you think is worth holding on to, right? Yeah, yeah. And so like uh, the, the theoretical terms that I, I use to start weaving where rhetoric is involved in these sorts of infrastructural backgrounded changes is memory infrastructure and memory techne or mnemonic mm-hmm. techne. And the infrastructure is the 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 sorts of databases or the the ways that those databases work or the library catalogs work or the card catalogs work and the techne are the new modes of intervention that publics have in order to make a difference in 
the sorts of information that they use to go about their daily their daily life. And like a really uh, good example that I didn't try to cover in the book because it's too new is that you know like when when you if you're looking at social media throughout the day. The sorts of things that you're cued to remember, the sorts of things that are pushed out to you, the sorts of things that you're able to pull from Twitter's database all of a sudden change in a, in a palatable way or a palpable way, the, 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 the ideas, the concepts, the people that you think about and connect with. And mm. so I, I think one of the things that's really kind of interesting for me is that when I was thinking through the history of this project, I typically, you know, one of the things that gets brought out about historians is that they tend to be lumpers or splitters. And the lumpers are like, I see continuity through history and with minor changes. And the splitters tend to be folks that are like, I've seen new eras happening continually. And I will very much say, like, when I'm reading archival work, I tend to see continuity with the past. And so the, a lot of the work of this book is to point out, like a lot of our modern memory practices, use, use of social media, use of things like Google Scholar, for example, all are really changing the nature of what we can do and how we connect with other people. And so the term like a term like uh, memory infrastructure helps us understand there's this background, very technical uh, infrastructure that we're working with and our techne are the minute daily mm. changes that we can make to create a difference in what we've inherited from the past. Mm. Good. Def wow. You're good with the terms. <laughs> that was fast. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about some other examples because I thought the Zata codes were very illustrative, but of course there's some really fun stuff happening and you have these interesting intermezzos. I'd love the stuff about the book truck. It was kind of, I know it's kind of a, of a niche piece of the book, but it was really fascinating. Uh, and then you have this concept of, um, there's a phrase, memory Memory is like the, the coin for currency, which is just a phrase about like what gets accepted as as general currency and exchange value. So you, you have a real th through line here about money. And yeah. We don't normally think of money and infrastructure and technology and memory, but in this, it's very much like tied to money as in capital, but also how we think of money as how we think of these things as well in an interesting way. So do you want to unpack any of that for us? Sure. So like the, the through line with the, the money is that, you know, like the, some of the, the older anthropological, uh, anthropological research on the, uh, you know, the development of writing systems is that many of them or some of the, some of the earliest uses of writing um, come from um, trying to keep track of uh, social transactions about that are that are commercial, and that that mm. starts a larger set of linguistic practices, or at least changes the any sort of linguistic textual practices after the fact. And so there's mm. this idea that as that language is a technology, it's also simultaneously this sort of coin of the realm, this thing that we're passing around that's transforming human relations in, in a way that's, that we can understand with the economy that isn't always straightforward. Um, and so like, I, I love that book card example because it's a really good uh, illustration of some of the sorts of weird ways that memory practices can start having unusual, uh, unusual effects on the ways that people interact with each other. So in that there's this intermezzo in the book where uh, Dorothy Crossland gets in a fight with uh, one of the Dorothy Crossland, who was a librarian at Georgia uh, Institute, Georgia Tech, um, got in a fight with one of the uh, librarians that was working with her uh, in the library that she directed. And this book truck, which is simultaneously one of the mnemonic techne that allows the librarians in that case to move books from, you know, when they bring them into their collection and then restaff or re restock their shelves so that people can check them out simultaneously also become this mode of like this, this way for them to fight with each other. So Crossland gets in a Crossland literally throws a book cart at one of her, uh, at one of the, the, the librarians that work at her, her library. And it becomes this thing that forever changes their relationship working together. Um, and just to tie that back to the, the major themes from the book in terms of like uh, memory infrastructure and mnemonic techne is 
you know, like the, these book carts are really important because they change how fast people can remember. Like the, if you can only put like 20 books in a book cart and your book carts are the, 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 that you're and your book carts tend to only be filled when people are working within the library as an institution. And then those books end up getting pulled back out the shelves at a particular pace. And that's when the act, the, the public has access to that, to that sort of, uh, type of information that, you know, that's, that's, that's simultaneously affecting the way that publics remember and forget. Um, and that these coins that are important for, um, straightforwardly transforming who remembers what and how quickly they can remember what and who has access to remember what and what sorts of arguments can be can be made with that textual evidence also have these strange uh labor effects and and like social effects that you wouldn't predict but also are still uh, a part of uh memory infrastructure and the ways that we interact with it Hmm. Yeah. And do you want to kind of give a summary of the book truck? Because we mentioned it, but you and I know what it is, but this, you might want to tell the story or the case study to the audience. Yeah. So the, the book truck is, I mean, the book trucks almost seem quaint now, but it's, it's, it's important to point out like book trucks were an invention of the um, late 19th century. And the, the person that popularized the book truck or started creating the first book trucks were, uh, was um, Melville Dewey. And book truck, like any other technology at the time, even though it seems simple and straightforward, is standardized so that libraries can use them. Um, and the reason that they're standardized is because if you have doors of a certain size, if, you're, if your bookshelves only fit a certain number of books, it also limits and makes a difference in what sorts of tools and technologies that you use to, um, to, to, to interact with your existing institutional space. So in this case, the memory infrastructure is literally the library bookshelves that the book truck must interact with in order to, you know, like put put new books on the, the shelves. And so that chapter highlights the the ways that Dorothy Crossland becomes an important member of a library community, which also means knowing how book trucks interact with her bookshelves, which also means uh, hiring labor that will be, that will be trained to work with particular bookshelves or and particular book trucks, and then be trained at what times and how quickly the the book truck that uh, the librarian is using to put old, you know, put, to resell books, um, uh, how quickly they would put old books that had been used by previous uh, individuals back on the shelf. You know, probably mm-hmm. an interesting side note to point out is like what the uh, I. Had, one of the things that made that part of the book really interesting to me is I was a librarian for a little while. And so mm-hmm. the, the, when I was working in libraries, it was really strange that to see folks would, you know, like literally fight over these book trucks all the time for a variety of reasons. So like as student students who were hired by academic libraries that I worked with would frequently like take them and hide them so that they could have books to shelve during their shifts, which would change like how quickly the books got put up or put up back on the shelves, or they would just disappear with them because they wanted to spend time reading books that were on the book trucks. And I was just like paying attention to the real ways that folks interacted with technology that weren't straightforwardly about the ways that, uh, that weren't straightforwardly about what the technology was supposed to do, but how people were really interacting with it within this larger social ecology. And so the, the end of that, the end of that intermezzo, and I should point out this book is structured in a way so that the memory infrastructures that I try to highlight are interspersed with smaller in the, the longer chapters and trace a longer historical trajectory are interspersed with these intermezzos in the between between the the longer chapters to highlight these sorts of micro interactions that are happening only because the longer history is being unfolded. Um, and just to draw that back to the book truck, so the, the book truck, which is the again the the ways that librarians take take books back from their book drops or their you know the ways the places that public uh, that that users of the library drop books off, they put them on the book truck, and then they they roll them back out to the shelves. 
and then the books are reshelved on shelves for the so that a new member of the the public can come and take a book and then you do it what they will with it and then bring it back later and the cycle kind of repeats itself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's i mean like i said i it's cool now because you go into a library and also i mean it was interesting to read this book because we've been having a debate on campus about whether we should have library, a library anymore as, as a place where books live, as opposed to just a kind of like a, um, like an information management center. That's basically a student lounge. And it was interesting to be in that debate while we were talking yeah. because it's not really like one is better than the other. I mean, sure. There's some arguments for which one's more, but it was more interesting to think they're totally, they, they're different technologies of memory, right? If, if we give them the books and we do this this way, then we're sending kind of one set of things about what's worth holding on to and what do we archive. And then on the other side, we're sending a totally different way of the students thinking about what it means to hold on to knowledge and organize knowledge. And so I kept trying to remind people, it's not about whether books are good or bad or whatever. It's about which kind of infrastructure of memory do you want to give them? And I think that's a really interesting question that mo most people don't think about when they think about architecture and information management. Yeah, 100%. That's a really good example of rhetorical. Why, thank you. <laughs> the, the, so like the, one of the, and I, I completely agree that, you know, like I, I don't, I can't, it's hard to make a value judgment about the sorts of memory infrastructure that you're producing as it's being produced. You know, like the, the sorts of ways that uh, people interact with what gets made are unpredictable, you know, mm -hmm. and that, you know, when we're having debates about whether we should have more book space or whether we should have more uh, coffee space or whether we should have more, we be we should be paying for databases. We're often having having discussions about people's concerns, anxieties about the future, and where publics clash about the sorts of future that they want as they argue about like the a fairly important space for for a lot of folks which is like these memory institutions transform what sorts of past that we remember and like right. so you know like this is funny that you bring that up because this has like been an ongoing debate within librarianship for decades now is um the the how much of your space do you want to devote to things that seem like they're informational and uh kind of documentary recognizing that as soon that, that at the point where your public, the, the users that want to uh, use your space don't actually find value in it because, you know, sometimes it's just boring or they don't want to be there. So they stop using it. Um, and then what, how do you, how do you think about the sorts of things that would bring users in enough so that they would be interested in maybe, you know, like using some of these other technologies like books or now we're talking more frequently about databases, or we're talking more frequently about web data sets, and how much you want to devote space to that uh, as, as we rebuild and we'll continue to rebuild the, the memory infrastructure, the library spaces that we work with today. There's really interesting debates that are kind of like very synonymous with, with that sort of discussion is like in the, in the early 20th century, librarians are constantly talking about how much popular fiction to put in the, into to their library. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they're like, well, we know this is the, the general morale of the field, which is, was uh, the general morale of the field, which is very gendered and raced at that point. Like t after the, uh, as soon as the 20th century started, without you know the 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 field overwhelmingly becomes uh professionalized and for and and women enter that professional space partially because uh, folks like melville dewey or some of the men that remain just like in charge of the larger libraries are like i can pay them less and they'll do this work that i don't want to do but on the the and well, simultaneously, that also has has meant that you bring in the morales of that very particular workforce. And so um, in that case where you're like, there's this kind of back and forth between how much do we put the good reading in versus how much do we put the popular fiction in? It's being directed by the moral values of uh, very white, very gendered uh, professional labor. That's like, I don't think I want to bring in popular fiction because it encourages bad reading. And the reason for those folks that it's bad reading is because it's associated with uh, 
members of the public that they would rather not deal with. And so like those sorts of historical concerns and anxieties are what one of the major issues I'm trying to bring out in my book is like, let's, let's pay less attention to the, to the ways that we're, uh, you know, documenting, remembering the past and pay more attention about what they say about our current historical, um, you know, our current historical state of how we treat each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and this is a good, um, yeah, see, my, not, just to put my two cents in, my argument keeps being about this library. Like, I don't really care about work, book versus computer or whatever. My concern is that is that people don't know how to cultivate. They're bad at cultivation, right? They're bad at curating. They just want to like, ima- like students especially. I mean, if you ask them to talk about something or write about something, they just want an information dump. And that's because they think of a text like Wikipedia or hyperlinked, blah, blah, blah. And they don't think of it like a cultivated, like a book, right? A book is a cultivation of knowledge and a computer is an amassment of knowledge. And so for me, it's like, meh, I don't know that we want to get, I don't know that it matters which form it is. I was like, but you really have to think about the library as a space of cultivating knowledge, not just compiling it forever because then they can't do anything with it. 100%. Yeah. So it, it was fun to read this book. Yeah. I, I recommend, of course I recommended it to people and they were like, the librarians loved it. I had a, in fact, I think they ordered a copy for our library. They were really into this book. You know, the thing I would, I would say is the add on to that as, as part of the argument is that it's, 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 it's everyone's obligation, I think, to pay attention to the desires and the anxieties and the sometimes whims of, uh, folks that they don't necessarily agree with. So if, you know, students want an information dump in some cases, I guess I would be just as, as, as I'm trying to cultivate what I think of as good memory practices, I'd also ask, what is it about our current institutions that's encouraging you to want to have information or to want Mm. memory in this way? And if you look at some of the ways that higher ed is scaffolded and the ways that they're put through standardized testing and like, you know, right to the test, it starts making sense. Like if you just want an informational dump, that's kind of sometimes what some of these standardized tests are asking for is to repeat verbatim without any intervention, the right answer, uh, so that they can, you know, continue on in the narrative throughout a lot of uh, the United States is that if you just do well within higher ed, still, it's like one of the few uh, ways that you can change your social status, which is, you know, kind of, I'm, I'm not sure about that claim, but then, you know, like putting it in that context, it's like, oh, the students have a really good point. They, they really practically want to use uh, some of their information resources. They might not want to remember them in the same way that I would think of as good curate, curatorial or memory practices, but they practically need to do something because they're being asked structurally to perform in a particular way and maybe a, a different way to frame whether so, whether you know a group of a group of students or a group of mem- members of the public are cultivating bad practices or cultivating you know like morally suspicious practices is to ask simultaneously what as what is a what is a, a nation what is a social group what is a, a larger you know public what are we doing to encourage students to act in this way? And how, and, and is this just a reasonable response from some members of the public? And we need to really pay attention to what's going on. Yeah, for sure. And this kind of dovetails nicely with chapter four, this conversation about, you know, um, current libraries where you talk about this uh, revolution. I don't know if that's the right word, but this real significant shift in librarian technologies at, I think it was Syracuse University. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to go there now, because this was kind of an interesting turning point his, historically for me to read about. Uh, or we could go to a different example that you think is just kind of fun. Or I always like to know what your favorite is, because everyone's got like a like a favorite chapter or favorite example, but maybe it was the book card. I don't know. No, I, I mean, that book card, this is great <laughs> with that book card. I, I love that book card so much. But this, the Syracuse example is a really good way to talk about the larger institutional memory infrastructure that's being produced. So the arc, let's go there then. Yeah. So the arc of the book is, is pointing out how librarianship is being changed by memory practices that are learned by folks coming back from World War II that have been retrained or educated with military intelligence training. And so they think about information in terms of let's defeat the enemy there's information everywhere, and we're kind of paranoid about it. This, like, and then re-entering uh, the the national workforce and entering the professional spaces 
of public librarianship or like and and just librarianship in general and transforming the sorts of labor that had been happening previous before World War II. Um, and so the Syracuse example uh, is this point where some of the the universities have so much inculcated uh, the ways that the post-World War II intelligent agent ways of managing information that they start also colonizing the, the, um, tra- the, the professional programs of librarianship and changing what you'd learn in a library school in a way that has long-term effect for the sorts of memory practices that are becoming part of more diverse, more diverse spaces. So the, the primary character in that book is Robert Taylor, who goes who um, goes to goes out to war, um, is a spy during World War II, comes back and says, this is how the military uh, asked me to think about information. And I see, and when I look at libraries, what I see is the same sorts of information that I saw during World War II. So we need to change everything about how the profession works. And Robert Taylor becomes important because he ends up eventually becoming the director of what ends up being the first information school. Um, iSchools are, you know, like prevalent in most, in, in many universities today. But many of these information schools are being built on the foundations of librarianships in schools that had been, had been uh, schools of librarianship or schools of librarian, library and information studies before his intervention and the intervention of other people that weren't that different from him. And so he starts codifying new uh, curriculum within the within higher ed that says, instead of teaching librarians that they need to spend ta- time learning how Library of Congress subject headings work, we're going to take some of that time and start devoting it to, we need to understand how information is used by uh is used as a, a, a mode of reconnaissance or can be used by folks that aren't just librarians. And let's start building databases that accommodate those new sorts of training regimes. And Syracuse is the place, the, 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 the most famous example, because uh, in 1972, the school literally changes, 1972-1973, the school literally changes its name from the School of Library and Information Studies and says, we're no longer the School of Library and Information Studies. We changed everything about our program. Our education is so different. We can't even see our own terms of art, our own theoretical frameworks anymore. And so we're now a school of information. But meanwhile, that school of information is still training librarians to go out and, and, and work at public libraries. Um, so like the, the, the example, the, the Syracuse example is trying, is, is pointing out like these long-term changes that seem so minor, like renaming the school. And I think probably folks in rhetorical studies probably could identify with this, that, you know, sometimes it's more useful for rhetoricians to, um, to, to, to try and talk about what they do in terms of writing. Sometimes it's more useful uh, to supplement or talk about what they're doing in terms of composition. Sometimes it's more useful to talk about what they're doing in terms of public speaking or communication. And um, what that chapter is pointing out when that school makes it that name change is that it's not just a practice of renaming an institution. It's the performance and recognition that the institution has so thoroughly changed what it thinks of at its, as its theoretical background, that it's transforming the sorts of memory infrastructures that, uh, that, that we have access to because they're literally training new individuals to make and intervene in different types of infrastructures. It would almost be like if you said to a rhetorician that uh, we're going to rename our, you know, our rhetoric and composition program as the user design program, because what we're doing right now is really just designing user experiences and interfaces. And so that term of art works better when at the point where that, like that sort of like name change happens, that 
for me, represents a really good point where to start asking questions about how has the field become a different form of knowledge or different way of seeing the world? And what does that mean for the publics that we're, that we're making a, the, the, the sorts of public audiences that we're training to be uh, rators? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. Have you gotten, what kind of reception has the book gotten in terms of um, from librarians or from, I mean, anything like that? Have you gotten any people that, in, in whose fields this intervenes that have said, oh, we agree, we don't agree, we like what you're doing, we think you missed anything? Has that ever happened? So here's, here's what I really love about the book is the thing that I was most concerned about was uh, I, I, I would say I dabble as a library historian. And, mm. you know, some of, the, some of the problems of doing interdisciplinary work is to have to learn multiple fields well enough in order to, to, to represent what they would recognize as themselves. So the feedback I've gotten from folks doing history of information science and folks from librarianship has been like, this is so great that somebody is contributing to our field again, because this is, this is the, this is the sorts of conversations that we want. And for me, that's like, oh, wait, I did a really good job just doing the archival work. You know, as someone trying, someone at the, the interface of, of a different field, I'm, I'm a little bit old. Maybe they wouldn't agree with the way that I was representing their history, which I really wanted to do as 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 well as possible in order to make a larger argument about rhetoric. And within so that that to me was just this fantastic feeling to get that sort of reception that librarian librarians are really eating this up and it's working. The the historians of the field like this. Um, the flip side of that has also been, though, that one of the, 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 the problems with interdisciplinary work is like they'll read that part and be like, I don't know what this rhetoric stuff is. And you're making these theoretical connections, but this isn't exactly library history. So I'm a little bit uncomfortable with where the rhetoric intervenes, where the chapter is like the final chapter is, is a theoretical chapter trying to make an argument for how uh, the field of rhetorics one of the field of rhetoric's forms of memory is a way to understand public librarianship and information science and information management. And so the feedback from that field has been like, I'm still not sure what to do with these parts of the book, with this part of the book. Um, within folks that study rhetoric and especially professional and technical communication, the thing that I've been really pleased by is like, this opens up a new way of understanding memory for the field that's not necessarily just place-based, but also can return some sort of, uh, or, or, or let us ask better questions about human agency as it relates to memory and not just so, not just so specifically about places or spaces or monuments. It opens up techne again as, uh, as, as a way for thinking about rhetoric. And you know, I'll give you a flip side to that too, is that some of the, because I end the book rewriting the history of uh, Simonides, the, 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 the poet who was popularized within Cicero's uh, work um, and saying, look, I, I, you know, I know we've used this Ciceronian myth to talk about memory. There's good reasons to stop like taking it at face value and taking mm. that myth that rewrite towards the end of the book has been uh, the point where people are like, I don't necessarily like the way that you kind of intervened in the way that we're going to tell that story. And I'm kind of like, I like that. I like the fact that we can disagree about the way that we're interpreting really old material. And more than that, I like the fact that it allows us to dislodge Roman and Greek rhetoric as a seat of a major, you know, a major part of rhetoric and start asking questions that are like, that we could bring to uh, rhetoric, uh, rhetorical practices um, with, from, from uh, other traditions. So for example. Yeah, th- uh, oh, real yeah. quick though, will you summarize this? Because I, I had this written down as something I wanted to talk about. So this is a great way to uh, wrap up the interview. Will you, will you talk about the shift you made to the readers who may not be super familiar with the Cicero myth and, and how, or the Cicero uh, rules. And then you're like, well, what if we think of it this way before yeah. you keep going? So, yeah. So, so, so the Simonides myth, which Cicero popularized and had been most likely 
you know, well-known to rhetoricians for centuries beforehand, um, is that uh, Simonides, a, a Greek poet, uh, was hired by Scopus, a uh, tyrant, uh, and, and as a way to remember his boxer's victory. And that Simonides was given the opportunity to recite poetry, which at the time for for that group of folks was poetry is the way that 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 they remember like this this verse it's like producing earworms so that you can remember the past because in a primarily oral culture the way that you remember the past is to somehow keep it alive orally and so the poets end up being one of the primary mnemonic techne to keep the past alive so scopus hires simonides to write him a, some poetry about um his, his boxer that had just won a victory. He hires him. Uh, Simonides shows up in his, uh, Simonides shows up at his party, prepared to give a poem. Uh, he gives, he gives the poem. Scopus is like, I don't like the way that you did that. So I'm not going to pay you. Uh, and Simonides gets, you know, Simonides is upset because he isn't paid as a poet. And so he leaves the party early. Meanwhile, um, the the roof of Scopus's party falls in on all of the folks that are in there, and for some reason, we can as as a field rhetoricians have typically looked at this and said and said the thing that's important for our memory practices is that Simonides was able to remember who was at the party because of where they were sitting at a table, and so when uh, authorities were trying to identify who. Uh, who is who out of these, you know, like in these uh, of these corpses that are left under the, you know, the rubble of a, a ceiling that had just fallen in? We say the thing that really tells us about rhetoric is that uh, Simonides could remember everybody because of exactly where they were sitting at a table. So I looked at that myth and I was like, that's not, you know, given what scope, given Simonides' position as a poet, as an as a, a techne of memory, that doesn't work for me. And so what if instead of thinking about that contribution of memory as him developing the memory palaces, which is the way that the field talks about uh, associating place with what part of the, the past is remembered, we think about this in terms of mnemonic techne that has been disgruntled, or is mnemonic techne being changed by this this unexpected event. And so the argument at the end is like, you know, maybe what we're supposed to pull out of this is not that Simonides was able to remember where people were sitting at the table, but possibly, just possibly, that Simonides might have been involved in making the roof cave down on everybody. And that is why we remember Scopus in the way that we remember him. And so to Mm -hmm. tie that back to the theoretical structure from the book, I'm like, I don't think that the techne that we should be thinking about as Simonides, uh, you know, memory palaces associating people at a party for uh, with the place that they're sitting at should really be our takeaway. I think that our takeaway should be, you know, our techne in terms of like poetic body and the practices that we inhabit is really uh, is really like the cultivation of a self is really what we should be taking away as a form of memory practice. Mm-hmm. Good. Yes. Helpful. And then was there, was there something else you wanted to say about that? Cause I had interrupted you to define that for us. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think, yeah. So I think that that sort of rewriting, which I knew as I was working on the book, okay, I'm, I'm taking poetic license to retell the Simonides story here because there's, you know, I didn't have, I, the, there's not great information. I mean, you know, it's it's when the the archival past that we have access to is the archival past that we need to make sense of our present. And so I knew, you know, like this, I'm making an argument that ideally will change the field. And so I could see um, this retelling not working for everyone. But so far from talking with folks, it's actually, you know, been kind of like, oh, yeah, this is a great way of, of seeing something else that's going on with this myth that we continue to retell in some forms of the history of rhetoric or in terms of folks that still teach memory palaces as a way to talk about public speaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a really interesting book. It's sad we can only sort of uh, hit the, this is always the case with some of this history, right? It's you've done all this work, but we only have time to kind of highlight some of the good stuff. But I think we got to all the things that were fascinating to me, or most fascinating anyway. Is Was there one more example or anything else about the book you want to say before we close? Um, you know, so I, uh, I guess 
What I would say about the book is that the thing that I'm most excited about is it, I, I think it's grounded memory in a new way that opens up uh, a way of doing history and doing rhetoric that hasn't, that, that could be contributed to in a way that, that um, I think would make uh, the rhetoricians able to better participate in um, like database development for Google, for example, or to weigh in publicly about the sorts of FOIA issues that we that that are like part of public discourse today, as we're you know thinking through presidential rhetoric. I think like the thing that I would say is the takeaway is like there is a there's a frame of memory that I'm really excited about that lets us weigh in differently on how publics are interacting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming. It was, a, I mean, a really great read. I've enjoyed having the conversation. I'm sorry we can't chat more. To everyone listening, we've been chatting with Dr. Nate Johnson about his new book from University of Alabama Press titled Architects of Memory, Information and Rhetoric in a Networked Archival Age. And just as my normal plug for those of you that listen, just a reminder that books like this, um, they do not make a lot of money. Alabama Press very much does this as a labor of love, and they're one of my favorite presses. And so if you are or um, excited about the work, go out, grab a copy for yourself. But if you're not, another very cool thing to do is give this to a librarian in your life or go to a library, public or university, and either donate a hard copy to them, which is very nice to do because budgets are tight right now, or you can also fill out public request forms for them to keep a copy on the shelves. I think especially with everything that's happening on a lot of campuses and in the public with how we're going to think about library space, especially with the labor intensity of books now and things like that. I mean, having books like this is going to be really crucial. So it could not have come at a better time. So with that, Dr. Johnson, you know, you want to say goodbye and thank everyone. And it was lovely to chat with you. I'll let you have the last word. Yeah, goodbye. And thank you for listening. And Lee, thank you for reading. It's like one of the best parts of uh, writing a book is getting to talk with folks that were interested enough and read it. So thank you. Yes, it's my pleasure. Goodbye, everyone. Have a nice summer and take care.